Greetings, friends. I'm recording this as a podcast rather than a live recording because we had some technical issues with the recording on Sunday, but I thought it would be good to produce something that um, people can listen to if they missed out on Sunday. So we are now in the home stretch of this sermon series, exploring what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, and uh, in the lead up to the series, I found myself struck by a line in an essay I was reading by Old Testament scholar Alan Davis, who wrote, Learning to be creatures may be the most important work we have to do. And something about the word creatures jarred me when I read that. If I'm honest, it made me think of, of bugs. And in that sense, I think her point was well proven. Do I really know what it means to be a creature? Because to call something a creature is to underscore its createdness. And furthermore, to call something a creature by definition invokes the presence of a creator. It's difficult to learn how to be a creature in 2023 because this notion of being in relationship to a creator sits well outside the dominant paradigm of our predominantly Western liberal culture, which is fundamentally atheistic. The logic follows. If there is no God, then we are not creatures, and we have no responsibility to a creator. Of course, this raises questions around what we are responsible for and to whom we are responsible, if not our creator. But outside of a theistic paradigm, the answer to these kinds of questions tend to collapse back on the self. And so we are taught by advertisers, influencers, uh, pop philosophers to live as autonomous beings, to live as self-governing beings. But autonomy, by definition, makes it difficult to determine to whom and for what we are responsible. Now, that may not feel like a big deal. In fact, it might sound preferable to living a life of accountability. No one really likes the idea of being judged. But, on the other hand, I think we all want our lives to be witnessed by someone. An autonomous life, in a world without a creator, is, at a deep level, painfully lonely. I think that's why solitary confinement is defined by the UN as a form of torture. You know, deep down, we all want our lives, with all the joy and all the pain, to be witnessed. The ever-quotable farmer and poet Wendell Berry expressed this basic idea in different terms when he said, There is, in practice, no such thing as autonomy. Practically, there is only a distinction between responsible and irresponsible dependence. So, throughout this series on being the image of God, we've been trying to make the case that you know being made in the image of God means living with responsible dependence as creatures, living with responsible dependence on God, our Creator, rather than as autonomous agents inventing our lives and inventing ourselves. So we've done 
this so far over the weeks that we've been in this series by making a cascading set of claims. First, we've made the claim that God is the creator of everything. Secondly, we've made the claim that God has ordered the entire cosmos as his temple. And like the ancient kings of old, he has come to rest or to Sabbath in his temple. And he's done so after triumphing over the chaotic void. That's how it's presented in Genesis. Thirdly, we've talked about how God created humans, male and female, to bear his image, to signify his rule, to participate in bringing order out of chaos, and to return all the praise of creation back to him as worship. We do this work um, through our, our work, through our human vocation, through our, uh, the various ways that we um, bring order out of chaos. Is another way of saying that's our work. Um, and James spoke eloquently about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the fifth point is that humans re rebelled against God's rule, we know this, um, by attempting to insert themselves in his place. And from that point on, the whole of creation that was made to be sustained and multiplied was instead subjected to death and decay. Humans who were created to rule together in unity became divided in hostility and embedded in patterns of oppression, which, according to Genesis 3, started with the first human couple before rippling out to include everyone and everything. We've also made the claim that, through Jesus, that God has reversed this process. He's reversed the effect of sin. Jesus' work is tearing down the dividing walls between people and bringing eternal life in the place of death. However, we still live in a state of tension now between old creation and new creation. Hence, we continue to experience suffering, but it's no longer meaningless suffering. It's instead bringing us into deeper knowledge of God and ourselves. And this is something that Lloyd shared a few weeks ago. And then last week, Sarah unpacked the importance of understanding that our status as image bearers was not lost in any of the above processes. It wasn't lost through sin. Uh, indeed, we, we cannot lose our status as image bearers at all because it's not determined by things like um, our morality or our rationality or our intelligence or creativity or empathy or any other capacity which can be gained and lost. But our status as image bearers is simply defined on the fact that we have these bodies made in the image of God. And as a result, our bodies are sacred sites of God's presence in the world. And that ought to affect our attitude around how we treat other people, how we treat other people's bodies, and how we treat our own. Now, on Sunday, I, I spent some time kind of drilling down into the next layer of that insight by reflecting on what it means to be made in the image of God, not only as embodied beings, but as sexed beings, that is, male and female. Now, in an attempt to be careful with my language, uh, on Sunday when I was giving this talk, I had two stalls with me, um, and on one stall was a glass full of dirt, and on the other stall was a glass full of water. That's not very helpful, because you can't see that, but you'll just have to imagine. The dirt 
represents the reality of our sexed bodies, while the water represents our gender. Um, now, dirt and water in this illustration is intended to be value neutral. Um, when you mix dirt and water together, what do you get? You get you get mud. You get um, you get soil that's ready to produce life. So here we have these two elements um, neatly separated in this analogy, but in effect they are always bound up together. Now um, I won't linger too long here, but uh, let me just spend a little bit of time clearing up some terms and terminology that will be hopefully helpful for the rest of this this talk. So. If you're imagining that you're just looking at the dirt now, uh, we can make some basic claims which are not controversial, uh, scientifically, uh, you know, part of a scientific consensus. So, this is the claim that humans, along with the vast majority of plant and animal species on planet Earth, are sexually dimorphic. So, sexual dimorphism is the condition where sexes of the same species exhibit different morphological characteristics, things like size, weight, color, markings, and behavioral traits. Um, now, there's plenty of variation across a population of organisms within a given sexually dimorphic species, but that doesn't contest the status of the species as a whole being sexually dimorphic. Okay, so hopefully that's fairly straightforward, if not kind of bringing back memories of your biology classes. So if you that's the dirt, if you like, and then over to and when we're looking at the glass of water, we have gender. So like I say, gender is a good and normal and necessary part of being human. But defining gender is slightly trickier than defining sex because it doesn't fit so neatly into those classic scientific categories like being testable, observable, reproducible, etc. But it is a thing. And um, and we can be more specific than, than that by separating gender into two subcategories. The first is gender roles, and the second is gender identity. So gender roles have to do with how males and females are expected to act in any given culture. So obviously... That will be different across time and place. Um, typically, an expectation is formed when the majority of a particular group, um, males or females in this case, act in a certain way. And this sort of plants the idea that everyone from each respective group should act a certain way. So gender roles are largely based on stereotypes. Some of those are helpful and some of those are not helpful. So that's gender roles. They change over time, and they are broad, general patterns of what males are expected to do and what females are expected to do based on that culture. Then we have the second subcategory of gender, which is gender identity. Now that's trickier to define, even more tricky to define than gender roles, and <clears throat> more of an evolving topic in our society. Um, but I'll just offer a very basic definition of gender identity, which is to say that gender identity relates to one's internal sense of self, as male or female, or both or neither. It's an internal sense of self, so it's a very subjective experience of gender. Um, so up until quite recently, gender and sex 
were treated as synonyms. Um, you'll look on your passport and you'll see that there's not gender and sex, but there's just one thing. Um, now increasingly they're being discussed separately, um, which has some aspects of being helpful and some aspects of being unhelpful. Um, just as a side, uh, a lot of a lot of this is quite new and quite unique in the English-speaking world. I was recently chatting to a friend in Switzerland, and he, you know, mentioned that in the German language, uh, German hasn't really caught up with the English language and the development of the whole vocabulary around this stuff. Um, they still have one word to describe gender and sex. Um, so, uh, and this is really the case um, with many other parts of the world. So this is quite a, a new thing and quite an English-speaking thing. Now, with all of that said, hopefully that's helpful if you can think again. You've got gender on the one hand and we've got sex on the other. Let's turn to Genesis now. Let's turn back into the Genesis account and make a few quick observations. So first, as we've pointed out over the last few weeks, while all of Scripture is artfully and intricately designed um, and we often miss the design because we don't read Hebrew or Greek but you know Genesis 1 when we look at it uh, we see a particularly exquisite piece of literature with um, a very balanced and careful poetic structure a lot of symmetry and um, repetition in the text so we don't need to read Hebrew to pick any of that up um, we can see it just by glancing at the text um, the symmetry of light and dark, water and land, birds and fish, and then repeated refrains like, And God said, and it was so, and there was evening and there was morning, and God saw that it was good. These kinds of refrains shape the structure of the text. So the text itself is clearly designed to enhance the content of the text. Structure enhances content. But then we get to Genesis 1.27, and if you look in your Bible, in your printed Bible, you'll notice that the type will change, signaling this break from the, the balance and pattern in the text. A new rhythm emerges, signaling that we're about to hear something significant. And this is what it says in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, it's not entirely unusual in terms of the ancient world and its ancient creation literature to refer to the king or the pharaoh as the physical incarnation of a deity, analogous to that of a, a cult statue or image of God. Remember that word, Salem. But what we have here in Genesis 1 is a radical leveling of that idea so that instead of only kings being the physical representation of an invisible god now all humanity male and female physically represent god on earth this makes genesis 127 one of the most provocative and liberating statements in all of scripture certainly all ancient literature. Not only are all males, rather than just the king, said to be a God's image, but all females as well. As Sarah pointed out last week, scripture suggests there is something 
vitally significant about our human embodiment when it comes to how we bear God's image in the world. But reading this text, we must also add there is something unavoidable and equally significant about our sexed embodiment as well. If sex differentiation wasn't mentioned here, you can imagine it would be very easy and natural to construct a theology that elevated maleness over femaleness. But Genesis 1.27 won't allow it. And equally by naming maleness and femaleness within the broader symmetry of God's creative work, Scripture highlights the way our sexed and relational identity correlates in some important way with God's identity. Genesis 1.28, the following verse, alludes to this with the command to be fruitful and multiply, sharing equally in the mandate to rule over the fish, the birds, and the livestock, which, if you remember, are the three dwellers of the three domains from the seven days of creation. So in a sense, have dominion over all all of creation. That That calling is given to men and women, not just to men. It's given to men and women equally because male and female, God created us. We also uh, see the connection between sex, I'm talking about the, the cup full of dirt here when I use that word, and relationality in Genesis 2, 19-25, where God brings all the creatures of creation to Adam to name them. And there's this funny kind of subtle sense of humor, or I don't know, maybe a bit of humor and a bit of pathos in this passage. We can imagine Adam spending day after day observing and naming these different pairings of creatures. You know, maybe he's having to go and observe them in their natural habitat, go and climb mountains and go down to the coast and cross savannas to, to watch and observe these creatures, these male and female sexually dimorphic creatures, and give them names. And as he's doing so, becoming more and more frustrated as he recognizes his own solitude in creation. Verse 20 puts it like this, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Now just to be clear there is no sense in which this word suitable helper suggests subordination. The Hebrew word here is translated uh, the Hebrew word which we get uh, helper from is actually the word Aza. And this is an interesting word. It occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. In two cases, it refers to the first woman, Eve, in this Genesis 2 account. Three times, it refers to powerful nations that Israel called on for help when they were being besieged. And in the 16 remaining times, the word is used, it refers to God as our help in the sense that he is the one who comes alongside us in our helplessness. Interesting, that helper is really not a great English word for it because it presumes a little subordination, whereas in the text and the rest of scripture and the way it's used in, 
in the Old Testament, it always refers to the stronger partner. Because God is not subordinate to his creatures, any idea that Aza, or helper, is inferior, is completely untenable. In fact, the meaning of Aza, if anything, overturns that idea of women being inferior to men. By the way, it almost exclusively refers to a stronger partner or ally who steps in to help a weaker partner in distress. Here in Genesis, it seems clear that without the woman, the man was unable to fulfill the mandate to rule over creation. The other interesting word here is the word suitable, so suitable helper. Um, in Hebrew, the word suitable is a compound word, so it's got two, two sub-words in it. The, first, the, the, the word suitable is connecto, and it's made up of these two words. The first is ke, and on its own, that just means like or as, while neged means opposite or against. So, like or as, and opposite or against. If we put those two meanings together, like and opposite, or as and against, um, we get something literally like a helper as opposite him, or a helper like against him. In other words, the text seems to be saying that Eve is a suitable helper for Adam, both because of her similarity to him and because of her difference from him. This is important. And then lastly, we have this very curious story of the formation of the woman from the side of the man. This is what the text says. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, <clears throat> lots to say about that, but just one thing. Uh, that word rib, it's quite a familiar word in terms of translation choices, but it's strange because in the rest of the Bible, uh, the word is used to refer to the side of a sacred piece of architecture, like the tabernacle or a temple. So rib is not really a very good word for it. Um, the point of the word and the choice of that word is to say that the man and the woman's bodies are both these sacred places of God's presence. Now, so far, everything I've been saying here sits squarely in this dirt side of the conversation. Uh, more accurately, perhaps, Scripture doesn't separate the dirt and the water. Uh, it doesn't separate sex and gender. It puts them together, it folds them together. This is not to say that we shouldn't think about them and their, uh, and some of the differences between sex and gender. It's just to say that in Scripture there's this conceptual unity 
in the text when it comes to explaining sex and gender. Now, uh, some might say I'm building quite a lot of theology on one or two verses, you know, uh, one or two pages of scripture out of thousands and thousands of pages. But the thing is, uh, these opening chapters of Genesis are not insignificant. They are like the taproot of the rest of scripture. You know, we see this particularly in the way that early Christians understood Jesus' work, which was primarily through this retelling of the creation story. Paul, in particular, refers again and again throughout his letters to Adam and Jesus as these two types of humanity to which we belong. So the creation story was hardly a peripheral story to the people of God. It was central to how they understood the big things like salvation um, and community and identity. There's lots to reflect on in the Old Testament, in the narratives and the laws and in the poetry and the Psalms. When it comes to the complex ways uh, sex and gender are worked out, you know, not least in the fall in chapter 3, which leads to, you know, hostility and competition between the man and the woman in place of collaboration. But if we jump ahead to the New Testament, when we see Jesus and the early Christians operating under this narrative of creation, and, and that will help us to sort of see how it shaped understandings of gender in those days in the New Testament times. So in Matthew 19, there's the story of a moment in which Jesus is cornered by a group of Pharisees who were trying to use a hypothetical puzzle about divorce and death and remarriage to try to trap him into, ultimately, into denouncing the law of Moses. This is what it says. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Here Jesus responds to the test about interpreting the Mosaic law by going right back to the beginning, blending Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 together to show that the pattern of creation represents a higher law. It's interesting that he quotes Genesis 1.27 at all here, as it doesn't seem immediately necessary for his response. The one flesh quote from Genesis 2.24 would have probably been sufficient on its own. But Jesus goes out of his way to appeal to the pairing of male and female as having some creational significance in the context of divorce and marriage. This is perhaps the most obvious place where Jesus interacts directly with the Genesis 1 and 2 text, but for our purposes it seems to be largely related to sex rather than gender. You know, 
we see um so we see him upholding this this view of of sex which is right in step with genesis 1 and 2 but if we think gender you know if we if we think about the the glass of water here um, we see that that in Jesus' ministry, he was also very interested in gender roles and norms, and particularly, he seemed to upend them a lot of the time. You know, it goes without saying that gender roles were around in biblical times. The Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures of biblical times were saturated with expectations about how women and men should act. In an honor-shame culture, for a man to do things which seemed unmanly was intensely shaming. And likewise, for a woman to do things which were unfeminine brought shame on her family. Some of these stereotypes are actually similar to the ones we have today in, you know, in the West. So in Jesus' time, in the Greco-Roman era, men were expected to be hairy-chested, sexually charged, domineering men and real men were military men joining the military and becoming a soldier was the one of the um, ways that roman males could lay claim to their masculinity um, particularly those from you know lower status society it was a way of elevating and gaining honor was by becoming a soldier and participating in the sort of violence and, and the culture of that so any male you know who cried in public uh, any male who showed affection towards women and not just uh, lust but just kindness and affection towards women any male who abstained from sex outside of marriage or any male who honored lower class people the poor the marginalized children that man was not considered a real masculine man to give honor to someone of a lower status was to diminish your own uh, like I said, women were also expected to conform to strict ideals of femininity. So when we meet Jesus in the Gospels, we find someone who frequently does not conform to strict gender roles or stereotypes. Jesus shows great emotion in the face of religious hypocrisy and economic exploitation. Greco-Roman ideals were all about tranquility and control rather than emotion. But Jesus, you know, he didn't shy away from expression. He also washed people's feet. He touched sick people. He showed compassion to marginalized women. He embraced children. He allowed himself to be abused and slapped and mocked and spat on. And he didn't fight back. His ministry was funded by women. Luke, in particular, elevates women in his narrative. He gives prominence to women like Anna and Elizabeth and Mary at the beginning of his gospel. They shape the beginning of the gospel. And we see stories constantly of Jesus um, elevating the place of women, challenging Martha's insistence on upholding traditional femininity and gender roles in the face of Mary's desire to sit and learn at the Master's feet as one of the disciples, to do to take the role of a man and, and to not fulfill the role of a woman in that gender stereotype. Jesus blesses it. It was utterly scandalous in that culture, and Jesus celebrates it. So Jesus both upholds the ontological significance of maleness and femaleness, 
in line with Genesis 1 and 2, he upholds that, that the glass of dirt, if you like, whilst frequently challenging gender roles and stereotypes that would diminish the dignity of women. Um, you know, at other times, Jesus also operated in easy alignment to the gender roles of masculinity in his day. He wasn't just uh, going around upending things for the sake of it. We have to be discerning around this, lest we make some anachronistic claims that Jesus was a feminist before such things even existed. He's older than feminism. He he goes right back to uh, a deeper thing around human freedom. But what about Paul? Uh, Paul, he's famously maligned for being a misogynist by many Christians because of what seems to be his um, strict reinforcing of, of gender roles, of, of what men and women should and shouldn't do. So let's briefly consider just a few things which might trouble that view. Firstly, Paul, like Jesus, often seemed to live at odds with the gender roles of his day. Paul, you know, instead of reveling in his masculine power, he celebrated his weakness. He talked about the way that his knees couldn't stop wobbling when he came to Corinth to preach the gospel to them, saying, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My speech and proclamation was not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So Paul reveled in his weakness in a very unmanly way because he knew that God's power was where his identity lay. He also deliberately used and adapted the masculine and feminine gender norms of his day to um, to create dissonance in, in the mind of his audience and to help them to construct their new identity and relationship uh, as males and females in Christ. He applied common masculine metaphors of the day to all believers, irrespective of their sex. Um, so this includes characteristics such as strength and ability in war, athletic competition, and gladiatorial combat. Now, if we just have to think, like, imagine you're a young female Christian slave. You've spent your whole life being told that you are nothing and that you are at the very bottom of society. Paul speaks to you when he writes this letter to the church and he tells you to stand spiritually in the full regalia of a Roman soldier, putting on the helmet and the breastplate and the belt and the sword. This this image, this masculine metaphor would have been deeply formational and transformational in terms of her identity in Christ. It doesn't mean Paul was telling her to become male, but to live with that kind of manly strength internally. Similarly, Paul used the metaphor of the athlete to explain the Christian life, which again is an, another exclusively masculine metaphor, which Paul's applying to male and female Christians. Paul described his female ministry colleagues, Euodia and Syntyche, as women who fought or competed alongside him as part of his team of fellow workers in a culture where athleticism belonged exclusively to the masculine and the public, 
sphere, uh, this would have been striking and odd, indeed. And again, Paul applies feminine metaphors to all believers in a culture where virtue was manly and males were stringently cautioned against displaying any kind of effeminate behavior or dress or emotion. Paul repeatedly utilizes images of childbirth and breastfeeding, imagining himself as being in the pains of childbirth with the Galatians, feeding the Corinthians with breast milk, and he also encouraged you know, all believers to see themselves as the bride of Christ, being prepared for her wedding night. When we think about the, the lens of Middle Eastern culture, ancient or modern, Paul's projection of female status and roles onto men would have been scandalous or even insulting. And why? Why was all of this happening? Well, because Paul recognized that the gender roles um, needed to to make room for a, a bigger view of what it means to be human in Christ, a, a constructed identity in Christ that no longer lives in the shackles of that culture's strict um, and dehumanizing gender norms. He wasn't calling women to become men or men to become women. He was calling them to exercise their full humanity in ways that were larger than the gender norms of that day. This is far from a uh, slam dunk or, 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 you know, final word on this topic. Uh, on even some of the more perplexing passages of Scripture, which I will address on Sunday, um, but more a couple of opening thoughts on some contemporary issues and help, helping us to see both that that maleness and femaleness are, are, are ontological realities that are essential to our embodiment, and that gender is a good and normal and natural thing within that. And gender norms need to be challenged where they dehumanize and and so that we can live fully human lives. Now, things I haven't talked about are, are the fact that many people experience things like gender dysphoria where they have a dissonance between their gender identity, their sense of self in relation to their body, um, that's common. It's normal and even natural to feel a little estranged from our bodies at times when we live in a, in a culture where the gender stereotypes and gender roles are so restrictive. But what scripture doesn't, you know, scripture gives us license to challenge these things, but it doesn't give us license to, to challenge our sex, if you like. Our, our sex is fundamental to who we are, but our gender and gender roles and gender stereotypes are all up for grabs, and the church ought to be a place where these things can be challenged for the sake of liberation. Fundamentally, we are called to love and to care for for everybody, and particularly to care for the increasing number of people who experience dissonance and dysphoria around their gender. We are called to love. We are not called to judge and condemn. Um, the church ought to be a place that offers a liberating path out of dehumanizing gender roles. So scripture affirms that our sex embodiment as part of God's good creation 
But it doesn't call us to a narrow life. It calls us to a spacious life of responsible dependence. So God bless you. May God be with you. May God grant you peace.